listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. I'd like to present four life-altering questions that you should continually be asking yourself and answering throughout the course of your life. Four life-altering questions that you need to ask yourself, that I need to ask myself throughout the course of our lives. If you ask these questions and you answer them repeatedly, you will find that yours will be an exceptional life, a life that gives God great, great glory and also brings a great degree of personal satisfaction a great degree of personal satisfaction. Now, you might think, since you're just hearing me, you're not reading what I'm saying. You're hearing me. You might think that you understand the way I'm spelling, altering. So I'm going to spell it for you the way I mean it. I don't mean it A-L-T-E-R-I-N-G. I mean it A-L-T-A-R-I-N-G. These are four life-altering questions. See, if you ask yourself, these life-altering questions, these questions that have to deal with worship, they have to deal with surrender, they have to deal with giving our greatest to God for his glory. If you deal with the alteration, if you deal with the altering part of your life, then every part of our lives will be altered, A-L-T-E-R-E-D. So it's all about altering as an act of worship to God, and then everything in our lives will be altered for life altering questions that we need to ask ourselves repeatedly again and again. But it's not just asking the questions that's important. Listen, there is a tragedy that is happening even as I'm speaking right now. It's underway right now in church after church after church all around this great nation of ours. And unfortunately, it's not just limited to this great nation of ours. It's happening around the world right now. It's been happening before we began our time together, and it's going to continue to happen after our time together this morning is over. And by great, I don't mean wonderful. I mean terrible, tragic, and of epic proportions. The great tragedy that is happening is that there are people all around this nation and all around the world who went to church and who have gone to church and who are at church at this very moment who think that it's simply through hearing the word of God that our lives are transformed. It's a mistake that any one of us could make any time of our lives. We have a tendency to gravitate toward that mistake throughout the course of our lives, and we need to take it captive. See, I'm going to try as best I can to preach and teach the Word of God during our time together as if it were the last time I ever had the opportunity. But I need to know if you're going to receive what you're going to hear as if it were the last opportunity for you to hear God's Word. Because that's what makes all of the difference in the world. Asking these four life-altering questions will not change your life unless you're willing to answer these same four life-altering questions. So I need to know. More importantly, you need to know if you are really ready to receive from God. So I want to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes for a moment. And settle into the reality of what's about to happen. I'm going to ask, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, four life-altering questions. I'm going to bring us into passages of Scripture that these questions come out of, where they arise from. And I don't want to just ask these questions. I don't want you to just ask these questions. I want you, more importantly, the Lord would have you answer these questions for yourself and for your family and respond and adjust our lives accordingly. Four life-altering questions that we need to ask continually. The first question is, am I in any way limiting God? Am I in any way, any shape, any form, in any area of my life, am I limiting God? 
In Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul has been talking about the gospel. He refers to it as a mystery, something that wasn't clear to the Old Testament saints, something that was becoming increasingly clear in New Testament times as Paul was teaching and preaching the word of God in a live fashion, live forum after forum, and writing the epistles, one epistle, one letter after the other, and these were being read and dispersed and copied and sent all through the different churches throughout the, the, the known world at that particular time. Paul has been doing what Paul does best as an apostle. He's talked about the gospel, the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins through the person and the works of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been doing in the first section of the book of Ephesians. And then in verse 14 of chapter 3, he gets around to the thing that eventually you need to get around to and I need to get around to. He gets to the heart of the matter. There's always a response that's necessary in light of the initiatives of God. And God has made the first move through the gospel, the great news that we're going to look at together today. He's made that first move in giving us salvation and the forgiveness of sin through what Jesus did on the cross. And now what Paul is doing in verse 14 is he's helping us apply and practically respond to everything that God has done. That's what it is that he says in verse 14. This is what he's writing about in Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, for what reason? In light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus Christ has done by forgiving you and me of all of our sins through the precious, priceless, shed blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a long prayer that Paul has written out in the original language. There's not punctuation and a period there at the end. It just goes on and on and on. It's almost as if Paul were having an out-of-body experience again where he's being caught up in the goodness of God, caught up in the amazing reality that through Christ, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has demonstrated to us definitively, ultimately, once and for all, in an indisputable way, the love of God that surpasses, goes above and beyond gray matter. This is what he's talking about when he says it's beyond understanding. It's beyond human intellectual insight. And here we have the apostle, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament books where it seems like he's having a word crisis. Isn't that ironic that here he is writing the word of God and he's having a word crisis? What I mean is this. When we realize what the gospel is all about, the great news of forgiveness where God provided a substitute to die in our place, a sinless substitute to die in our place so that we might have new life. We might be born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. When we realize that, there are times in our lives where words do not suffice. They cannot express the reality. Cannot help us convey what God has done for us who don't deserve to have anything done for us. 
And that's why Paul's sentence here goes on and on and on. This prayer where he seems to be caught up in the Holy Spirit goes on and on and helps us understand the importance of not limiting God. Ask yourself this question often. Answer this question before Almighty God often because if you do and when you do, it will spare you from living and leading a mediocre life. The question is, am I in any way limiting God? Let's look at what Paul says again. It's worth a second read. In Ephesians 3, 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, all those who are saved, all those who are set apart, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses human intellectual insight. That's what that word means, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That becomes especially important by the time we're done. All the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do some. Know what it says? It doesn't say that at all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Do you understand that as a follower of Jesus Christ, the power of almighty God is at work in your life, at work in my life. It's not your power. It's not human power. It's the power of God that is at work in you, in me, not by anything that we've done, but by what God has done. God is able to do above and beyond exceedingly, far more abundantly than anything we can comprehend, anything that we can think. Have you in any way limited God. You know, there's another tragedy that's happening all around this nation or all around the world. When it comes to the Word of God, the Bible. See, one of the ways that we limit God, we don't even realize we're doing it, is that we take this Word, the timeless, matchless, priceless, one-of-a-kind Word of God, the Bible, 66 books put into a collection of one book. We call it the Bible. One of the things that has happened, one of the things that could happen is that we only believe that the Bible is a motivational, inspirational book about how I can improve my life, how I can learn some principles about living, how I can get the most out of my life and be successful. Now, of course, the Bible is a motivational, inspirational book. If you want to be motivated, if we want to be motivated and inspired with a book that's unlike any other book, there is no other book like the Bible. But if that's as far as we go, if that's all we think that the Bible is, is a motivational, inspirational book for principles of how to succeed in the here and now, we are missing what the Bible is about. See, one of the things that's happened in the body of Christ is that we think that the Bible is God's gift to us to help us make the most of our lives for ourselves. And that's not the primary purpose of the Bible. See, the Bible is God's book about himself. The Bible is God's book about how God moves, how God operates, how he's expanding his kingdom, how God 
glorifies his name. And therefore, you must understand, I must understand, we must understand that if we lose sight of that, we will limit God. Do we in any way limit God by our understanding of why we are here, why the Bible has been given to us? The Bible is God's book through which he reveals himself, through which he reveals his agenda, and through which the disciple follows the plan, the purpose of God for the glory of God. Don't think for a minute that all and only the Bible is, is a book for motivation and inspiration and principles on success. It is about how to succeed in glorifying God how to follow God the way God wants to be, the way God requires to be followed. And so you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, am I in any way limiting God? Paul makes it very clear. He makes it abundantly clear here in Ephesians. Look at what he says. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, ask God to do abundant things through your life. Think, envision God doing abundant great things with your life and through your life and even in spite of our lives. However... Don't make the mistake of thinking that God is in the business of simply joining you and joining me in what we think is important. No, it's not what it's about. The life of a disciple is one of making continued decisions to align our lives for the glory of God. It is God's work powerfully at work in us to advance the agenda of God, the purpose of God, the glory of God, and think your wildest dream for the glory of God. God has already outdone you. Imagine your life, imagine your family, imagine this church giving God unprecedented glory. Close your eyes for a moment. Get it in your heart. Get it in your mind. It's a new year. It's a time for us to dream, time for us to envision success in our lives moving forward. The truth is that God has already exceeded our wildest expectations when it comes to his glory. He's exceeded our wildest understanding of how he wants to be glorified, of what he's capable of doing in our lives. This is why Paul is saying it is his power at work in us. That's the amazing reality for your life and mine as a follower of Jesus Christ. God's power is at work in you. His power is at work in me. To do what? To do above and beyond what can be accomplished in the mere natural run-of-the-mill course of events in the day in and the day out. God is in the business of exceeding expectations. And nowhere has God exceeded our expectations more than in the area of giving glory to his own namesake. He is worthy of being glorified above and beyond the capability of our mere minds to comprehend. Have I in any way limited God? Have I in any way Put God in a box. This is the irony of what happens. We tend to do this. We 
believe that God is omniscient. We believe that God is omnipotent. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. There's nothing that God can't do. God knows everything from the beginning before it's the end. God is capable of doing things above and beyond what we could do in the mere natural sense of human power. We believe that as disciples. We believe that as people who read the Bible. But then what we do is we somehow, without realizing it, subtly with the passage of time, we build a box that we think is God-shaped. We limit him. We say, oh, no, God, you're not capable of doing that. We Forget how we've prayed to him and how we've called him and called out to him and asked him to do in accordance with what Paul is praying here in Ephesians for all of us that God can do above and beyond what you comprehend, what I comprehend, what we comprehend. It's not a matter of understanding what God can do. It's a matter of God doing what we cannot understand. And so you need to come to terms with this. I need to come to terms with this. We need to ask God, God, have I in any way? See, this is not a sermon. I'm not just preaching a message right now. And you're not simply listening to a message right now. This is a question that if you ask it before Almighty God, if you ask him for the answer, your life will take a huge step forward. Am I in any way limiting you, God? Have I in any way limited you, told you that you can't do what you can't do? Have I begun to operate by faith rather than fear? See, what we do as mere mortals, we do it all the time. We put God in that box. We take him out when we need him. We put him back in when we're done. And we take the omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God, the God that we read about in the Bible, the God we hear about. And we forget that he's capable of doing above and beyond far more than we realize, far more than we can even think. Number one question you need to ask and continually answer, am I in any way limiting God. It's time to stop. Second question you need to ask yourself and answer for yourself. Second question you need to ask God. I need to ask God and continually answer. Is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there anybody I need to forgive? And is there anyone that I need to go after and pursue and ask to forgive me? Forgiveness is a huge issue in the body of Christ, not just the world. This forgiveness issue is a huge, huge thing. The second question you need to continually ask God and answer, is there anyone that I need to forgive? And is there anyone that I need to go to and ask to forgive me, to ask for forgiveness. It's huge. There's a correlation between mental health. You might not realize this. Mental health and forgiveness. There's a direct correlation. And we'll get to what the scriptures have to say, what Jesus had to say and has to say about forgiveness in just a moment. But I want to appeal for just a moment to our selfish motives, the what's in it for me, the W-I-F-M, the me, myself, and I. Every single one of us wants to be healthy. Every single one of us wants to be happy the way to live a happy and a healthy life, the happiest life possible, the healthiest life possible is to live life according to what God has taught in the Bible, in his word. A recent study in the Journal of Health Psychology concluded that there is a strong correlation between forgiveness and mental health. Huge correlation. The study found this, the more forgiving people are, the fewer symptoms of mental disorders they experience. According to a study published by the Journal of Health Psychology, the researchers suggested that teaching forgiveness may be a valuable mental health early intervention strategy. Imagine that. 
teaching about forgiveness actually can be an early intervention for a mental health strategy. That's why it's important to teach and to preach the Bible, the Word of God. But it's not simply important just to teach and preach and listen to the Bible. It's important to put the Bible into action. Look what else they found in this study. The team of California psychologists recruited 148 young adults from a mid-sized Midwest liberal arts college who completed surveys about their histories of physical and emotional stress and well-being and their tendencies to be forgiving towards themselves or others. The researchers wrote that their findings show for the first time that forgiveness is a strong, independent predictor of mental and physical health. Specifically, regardless of the types and levels of stresses the participants reported, the researchers found greater forgiving tendencies linked to fewer negative mental health symptoms. And so, in a very real sense, we're out of our minds and going out of our minds to not be forgiving. We found that lifetime stress severity was unrelated to mental health for persons who were highest in forgivingness, significantly associated with poor mental health for persons exhibiting moderate levels of forgivingness, and most strongly related to poor mental health for participants exhibiting the lowest levels of forgivingness, wrote the researchers. The researchers did not study how or why this correlation may exist, but hypothesized, listen to this, that forgiving individuals may have a more adaptive or extensive repertoire of coping strategies. Forgivingness may dampen emotional, physiologic, or genomic components of the stress response that lead to poor health, or forgivingness may facilitate healthier behaviors in the aftermath of major life stress. So, if you want to have the healthiest mental condition possible, you need to be, and I need to be a person who is someone who is healthy in the area of forgiveness. Forgiveness and mental health go hand in glove. You want to be healthy. You want to decrease the amount of difficulty that you have in the course of life. Then forgiveness, giving it and receiving it has to be fundamentally central to the way we conduct our lives. Now, as a pastor and as a Christian, I've had the opportunity through the course of my life to counsel people and deal with relational issues. I've dealt with them myself, deal with them myself, and you do too. And I brought with me today a bag of tricks. I have a little black bag here with something inside, and I thought I would share it with you because inside this bag I have a few things. And one of the things I have in this bag is a sliced lemon. And I wanted to bring this because in the course of interacting with people, you've had this experience yourself, and others might have had this experience with you as well. Something happens to the countenance of a person who struggles with forgiveness. When somebody is not a forgiving person as the characteristic way in which they conduct their lives, something happens to the look on their face. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time counseling them. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking with them because it looks like with the passage of time, see this lemon that I have here holding up in front of my face? With the passage of time, okay, They look like they've been sucking on lemons. There's something about the countenance of somebody who is not forgiving where what's in the heart makes its way to the face. The heart and the face communicate. And you can tell by looking at somebody, boy, they look like they've been sucking on something bitter because they have. They have been. And Jesus speaks about the issue of forgiveness very clearly in Matthew chapter 5. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus speaks about this issue with absolute clarity, and he speaks to us today. His words are timeless, they're priceless, and they're absolutely transforming. 
and they help us answer this question. Is there anybody I need to forgive? And is there anybody I need to pursue and ask to forgive me? Matthew 5, beginning in 21, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. There are many people who have been self-imposed in prison, a prison of unforgiveness for no other reason than they are disconnected when it comes to the area of worship. Do you understand what Jesus is teaching here about worship? It's all about worship. There's a guy who wants to come and present his gift to God on the altar. What does the altar represent? Surrender. What does the altar represent? Sacrifice. What does the altar represent? Consecration. What does the altar represent? Worship. That's what it's all about. And Jesus says, if you go to engage in an act of worship before Almighty God. But as you're there, you recognize that somebody has something against you. See, Jesus' standard is always higher than our standard. We think, well, I'm not responsible. I didn't do anything. But there are instances where you might be aware of somebody else having an issue with you. Dabblers don't give a darn. Disciples do. Because a disciple realizes we're not going anywhere when it comes to worship. We become a walking contradiction instead of a living sacrifice. If I'm going to try to worship the Lord at the quote-unquote altar, whatever it might be, and there, while I'm worshiping, how ironic it is, while I'm at the altar, I realize that my brother has something against me. Jesus said, forget the worship. Get on with reconciliation. Ours is a God who is concerned and interested in reconciliation. Reconciliation and worship go together. We're the ones who separate them. But a disciple will never separate what God has joined. And so Jesus says, you do have a responsibility. The implication could be here, maybe you did something that caused the other brother, the other person to to have a stumbling block over it. And if you're aware of that and you don't do anything about that, all attempts at worship should be put on hold so that the real issue can be addressed and taken care of. That's what Matthew 5 is speaking about. Now, the thing that's interesting about Jesus, one of the things that's interesting about Jesus, excuse me, I got to get a little something to drink. I don't have water, but I do have a nice big container, 32 ounces full of lemon juice. Mmm. bitter. Jesus deals with both sides of the coin. The disciple is responsible on both sides of the coin. Did you cause an offense to somebody? You need to go ask for forgiveness or run the risk of becoming bitter. Run the risk of letting that person be bitter. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also deals with what should be obvious, what should be characteristic, the issue of also forgiving. 
See, life outside of Eden can guarantee, it guarantees that people will do things against us that we don't deserve. Things will happen to us that if we're not careful, through unforgiveness, will make us very bitter. And with the passage of time, the look on our faces betrays us, and conveys everything that humanly speaking we need to see, but the truth is, God knows what's going on in the recesses of the heart. Look with me at Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus deals with the other side of the coin in regard to forgiveness, Matthew 18, 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, we're so much like Peter, aren't we? Peter is so much like us. Lord, what's the, the legal answer here. How many times? Seven times? That seems to be a number of completeness. How many times have I gone far enough, done everything with my ability, and I'm done? I can wash my hands of the matter and move on. And Peter here, again, doesn't get it, just like you and I, we don't seem to get it. How many times, Lord? Seven times? Look at Jesus. Jesus, not batting an eyelash, verse 22, said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus speaking with hyperbole. Jesus helping the disciples understand that they go the extra mile. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Jesus speaking about himself and his subjects. When he began to settle once, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, a huge amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii minuscule amount by comparison. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is one of those passages of Scripture that we just want to explain away. We just want to put Jesus in his place. Jesus, go back into your box. It's all covered under the blood. And what Jesus is teaching about here is the message of the gospel. Forgiveness is not simply important to the gospel message. Forgiveness is the gospel message. Forgiveness is the great news. Forgiveness is the gospel. And you can tell, I can tell, we can tell, more importantly, God can tell. The maturity of of someone who claims to be a disciple by how they handle the issue of forgiveness. That two-sided coin where there are things that we might say, things that we might do where we need to say, I'm sorry, I own up for it. There might be things, opportunities, people in whose lives we are part of their life, they're part of our life, there's somebody in the family of God and we need to go, we need to say, hey, I'm sorry, that I fill in the blank. And opportunities where people will come to us and say, I did this to you, said this against you, acted in a way that was inappropriate. Will you forgive me? There is no gospel 
without forgiveness. There is no gospel without reconciliation, first being reconciled to God. And once we're reconciled to God, we are to be reconciled to each other. God can tell the level of our spiritual maturity or the level of our spiritual immaturity by how well we reflect this fundamental understanding of the centrality of forgiveness to the gospel message. There is no great news without the forgiveness of sins. And those who really understand the great news, the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation, grow in becoming more and more mature in having everything in their lives, the totality of their lives, characterized by forgiveness. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. This is the life of a disciple. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, put these on. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Look at what he says there in verse 13. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You need to ask this question before Almighty God continually. More importantly, you and I need to answer this question. Is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there anyone to whom I need to approach and ask to forgive me? There is a direct correlation, a direct reflection on spiritual maturity and worship. There is no gospel. There is no good news without the ministry of reconciliation. And because God Almighty, through Jesus Christ, has reconciled us with him. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we too are to be reconciled with each other. So you need to ask this question and answer it. Am I in any way limiting God? Have I in any way limited God? Secondly, is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there anyone to whom I need to go and ask to forgive me? And thirdly, third question we need to ask and answer, am I the real deal, the genuine, authentic article? Is my public reputation in any way at odds with my private reality? Am I the genuine, real deal, authentic, Is there any discrepancy between my public reputation and my private reality? Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul is helping us understand one of the pieces of the judgment that will happen for every single disciple. Every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ will one day appear before God who knows the truth. And here Paul is helping us understand a piece of what's involved there. See, we could have a public persona where people look at us, they see the way we conduct ourselves, and they might draw certain conclusions about us. It might be true or they might not be true. The truth is that God knows the truth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know, Two people can do 
two identical acts. There can be a person over here who does something, a person over there who does something, and each of the two people can look like what they've done is so spiritual, so anointed, they look so appointed, it looks so flawless, it looks so acceptable before God, but the one thing that makes it acceptable to God and the one thing that makes it unacceptable to God, the thing that makes it acceptable is when it's done with the right motive. And the thing that makes it unacceptable is when it's done from the wrong motive. Humanly speaking, this side of eternity, we might not know the difference. But God knows the difference. And that's what should concern the life of a disciple. That's what distinguishes the disciple from the dabbler. Focusing on the motives, focusing on the heart. And you need to ask yourself this question, am I the real deal? Is there a discrepancy between my public reputation and my private reality because the reality before God is that he knows the truth. He knows whether or not we're the real deal. And one day our motives, the things that are secret to each of us, the things that are secret to our spouse are not secret to our real spouse who is the Lord. The things that are secret to our employer and fellow employees the things that no one can really see in the mere natural are seen all the time, every time, by God who sees the heart. And one day, God will judge the secret motives, the secret intentions of the heart. So you need to ask yourself that question. You need to ask yourself that question. I need to ask myself that question. Am I the genuine, real, authentic, real deal? Is there a discrepancy between my public reputation and my private Reality. And finally, the fourth question that we need to ask ourselves continually and repeatedly Am I worth imitating? Is my life worth imitating? Is my life worth imitating? Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Look at what he says. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. And then look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Twice Paul says it here. An amazing set of rep an amazing repetition. Be imitators of me as I am imitate Christ. Now you might say to yourself, I'm no apostle. I'm no theologian. I'm not like the apostle Paul. I can't follow in his footsteps, but you're absolutely right. If all that Paul was doing were asking you and me to follow in his footsteps, it wouldn't have been high enough, wouldn't have been deep enough, wouldn't have been significant enough. What Paul is actually driving at comes to full fruition in our understanding in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, when he says this, Therefore, be imitators, not of himself, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what the goal is for your life and for mine. That's what Paul is helping the readers in his day, the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the readers in our day and listeners in our day. That's what the Spirit of God is helping us understand, asking and answering this question, is my life worthy of being imitated? The objective in your life and in mine, the objective of every single disciple is the same. See, God's given you a mission. God's given me a mission, which is the Great Commission. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of the things that Jesus commanded. That's the Great Commission. But along with the Great Commission is this whole idea of imitating God in such a way that our lives are actually worthy of being imitated. 
And you need to ask that question, and I need to ask that question. We need to continually ask that question before Almighty God. Is my life worthy of being imitated? Because in the final analysis, it's not that you or I am following a mere mortal, but that we are following the one who is immortal, the living and the true God. And God's calling on your life and on my life is the same whether you're an apostle, whether you're a pastor, whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon, whether you have a job, whether you're out of work, whether you make a lot of money, a little money, whether you have a family, whether you have children or no children. If you are a disciple as opposed to a dabbler, then your life should be imitatable. People should be able to follow you as you literally follow Almighty God. Am I in any way limiting God? Is there anybody that I need to forgive or anybody I need to go after and ask to forgive me? Am I the real deal? Is my public reputation in any way undermined by my private reality? And finally, is my life worthy of being imitated? Those four questions asked repeatedly, answered under the leading of the Holy Spirit will help you live the kind of a life that brings God great glory, will keep you in a sound mental state in these last days where people seem to have gone out of their minds and it will distinguish you from merely being a dabbler because you, unlike the majority of people, are a disciple. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.